want to start with two short anecdotes about our fears of mechanization, robot, and especially their impact on our livelihood. Uh, in the 1840s, a uh, Frenchman, Bartholomew Simonier, had a new patent on a sewing machine. And he opened the world's very first machine-based clothing manufacturing company. Uh, he'd gotten a big contract from the French army, and he was going to make uh, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of uniforms for them. But other French tailors got wind of the invention uh, and the factory that Timonier had created, and they were very threatened and unhappy to the point where, on the basis of their fears that uh, his machines and his factory were going to make all of them unemployed, they burnt his factory down, and he was inside the factory at the time. Now, fortunately, he survived, but it was a close call. In the same decade, 1840s, an American, Josiah Warren, invented an innovative uh, continuous feed printing press, rapidly uh, increasing the, the quantity of printing that could be done in a, in a unit of time. This was in uh, Evansville, Ohio, and uh, also threatened by their, uh, the impact of this on their livelihood, a mob of uh, angry union workers destroyed the press and the machines involved. So here we have uh, classic cases of workers threatened and competitors threatened by new technologies. There's a, a win-lose or a zero-sum thinking deeply embedded to the point where these fears manifest themselves in destructive, destructive actions. And now, of course, we can, uh, uh, you know, a century and a half later, look at sewing machines and automated printing presses. It seems obvious that they have been a net boon to all of us, uh, anyone who's a worker in those industries, anyone who's an entrepreneur in those industries, right, and uh, those of us who are customers of, uh, of those industries. So if we just focus on clothing, for an example, you know, how many people are now employed in the making of clothes around the world? How many uh, different competing clothing companies are there? What's been the effect on the quantity of clothing available, the cost of clothing, and the quality of clothing that, uh, that we're able to afford and, and enjoy? But even in our more advanced century, technologically, we find the same reactions and the same arguments with every new generation of technological advancement. So in our generation, for example, we find great optimism coinciding with great pessimism about the new generations of robots and artificial intelligence. And that's what I want to focus on in this episode. So what will be their impact on our work lives? Now, the, the business and the economic impact of these developing technologies clearly is going to be huge. And perhaps it will be even more huge than previous technological revolutions, industrial revolution, electricity, electronics, and so forth. One factor at work now is the larger number of converging technologies that are coming together and creating dramatically big tech changes in the technology landscape. Now, by a converging technology, I mean uh, technologies developing in different but perhaps related areas that come together to spur new innovations. Uh, an example here would be Henry Ford, early part of the 20th century, and Ford's great overall achievement depended on his bringing together three different technologies and making a convergence out of them. So for example, lots of developments in the internal combustion engine, but the internal combustion engine requires fuel. And so another technology that was important was all of the technological developments in the oil industry and refining. And then of course, there's another converging technology involved, and that was the assembly line. So what Ford is doing is drawing upon the engineering developments of assembly line, internal combustion engine, and oil refining. Those come together and make his overall achievement possible. But now, 100 years later, we have even more areas of technological development that are going on, the different uh, areas and sub-areas in science and engineering, and so there's even more possibilities for convergence out there. A second factor now seems to be the rate of adoption of new technologies, and that has been accelerating over the course of the 20th century and certainly now into the 21st century. And robots and artificial intelligence are two such accelerating technologies. And so, you know, while their economic uh, impact for a while has been impaired in blue-collar work, it's now becoming increasingly apparent in the, the white-collar sector. 
Now, at a high level of abstraction, robots and uh, artificial intelligence, they pick up two sides of the, the mind-body issue in, in philosophy. We are physical beings and we are psychological beings. As machines have been developed, they've been mostly been able to do better the physical things that we traditionally had to do ourselves using our bodies. But the newer kid then on the block is artificial intelligence, machine learning, the ability to process huge amounts of information, to parse that information out, to sort the wheat from the chaff, and then to you know, integrate that information into more usable outputs for, for human decision making. Now, a landmark development from uh, 23 years ago now, that's almost a quarter of a century on this uh, human intelligence and artificial intelligence side of the divide. So one you know, hallmark of human intelligence is the ability to play sophisticated intellectual games like, like chess. But chess is assigned a game complexity value of 10 to the 14th. And what that means, is that what that number picks up is the number of possible variations in a chess game. It's on the order of 10 to the 14th. So some astronomically huge number. And so human beings are able to play chess, but the first time that an artificial intelligence program, Deep Blue, it was called, was able to beat the world chess champion was in 1997. And that was a major landmark. Now, by contrast, the Asian game Go is assigned a game complexity level of 10 to the 360th. Chess is 10 to the 14th, so Go is an extraordinarily more complicated game. And an artificial intelligence program defeated the most advanced Go players in 2016. That's just four years ago from when I'm recording this now in 2020 at the tail end. Now, poker is another complicated uh, game, and especially interesting because part of the complexity of poker is making judgments based on information that's not fully available to you. Unlike, say, chess and go, where all of the pieces are openly viewable on the board, the person you're playing poker with has cards hidden from you. You don't, you know roughly how many, uh, or exactly rather, how many cards there are in the deck, but you don't know precisely what cards your opponent has. Also, you don't know your opponent's risk-benefit calculations, so your poker-playing decisions are based on uncertainties about unknown. But come the year 2018, artificial intelligence programs were consistently able to beat the best human poker players in the world. So, leaps and strides, uh, exponential improvements in machine learning and artificial intelligence at these traditionally human domains of intelligent behavior. Now, how far will the hardware and the software go? Will this exponential trend continue? What will be the implications for all of the things that we thought only human beings, from, uh, you know, as long as human beings have been wondering about these, that only human beings would be able to do? What will be the impact on our sex lives and romance lives or our broader personal lives, impacts on policing, military governance, and so on? Now, today I just want to focus on the work issues specifically since much of the public domain is on the business and economic impact of robotics and artificial intelligence. And I want to note the polarized response, which is the same polarized response uh, for centuries. Anytime there's a new piece of technology, there are those who are celebrating it. That this is really cool. Look at all these wonderful things that we're now going to be able to do. And yes, of course, there are going to be some downsides, but we can handle those. But then the polar opposite reaction, those who say, here's a new technology, disaster. Right? And then we have all of those Hollywood movies where the technology goes wrong and things get blown up and everything goes to hell. Techno dystopia and techno pessimism. So there is a perennial divide between the technological optimist and the technological pessimist. And we see that playing out right now among those assessing the impact of robotics and artificial intelligence on the workplace. Now, typically, the robotics discussion has focused more on so-called blue-collar jobs, jobs in which the physical labor component of the work is higher. Uh, will we see a decimation of blue-collar jobs? And then a huge number of dispirited workers and laborers who are not able to keep pace with the rate of change. Will that economic devastation in turn put pressure on politicians to expand the welfare state to look after those who are 
structurally unemployed, as the phrase goes. Now, the artificial intelligence discussion is focused more on so-called white-collar jobs, right? those in which the cognitive component of the work is higher. All of those secretarial jobs that involve modest processing of information. But, you know, they can be replaced by artificial intelligence that can parse out basic information, do editing, transcribing, translation, and so forth. In the medical field, with its huge number of administrators uh, processing medical information, including the entire health insurance industry, billions and billions of dollars there. Or in uh, legal work, anytime there's a new case, junior lawyers spend a huge amount of time researching, plowing through the legal literature, trying to find precedents to bring bear on the current case. But artificial intelligence programs are increasingly sophisticated at being able to do just that. So entire white-collar professions are being shaken up. Now, I think the optimist position is correct, and I think it will prevail. But I do want to put a couple of books out there for your consideration, a couple of recent ones that I uh, enjoyed and learned from. One is uh, John Tamney's The End of Work, which argues that the technology really is freeing us and enabling us to have more fulfilling career. I also recommend The Future is Faster Than You Think by co-authors uh, Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler. They're very good at technological and uh, scientifically informed crystal ball gazing about the near future impact of uh, artificial intelligence and robotics on healthcare, education, entertainment, our personal lives, and, and so forth. Are you looking for a new book to dive into? Then check out audiobooks.com. With over 150,000 premium titles, they have an incredible selection of books to get stuck into, whatever your genre of preference. Listening to audiobooks makes reading incredibly easy and enjoyable. Not only do you have instant access to thousands of titles, but powerful narrators can bring the text to life, often giving a book more meaning than just flicking through the pages itself. Do more with audiobooks and start your next book while multitasking, doing the laundry, taking a drive, going for a walk, doing exercise or something else. With audiobooks, you can even read your books with your eyes closed. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial and get three audiobooks completely free. Go to www.audiobooks.com and click sign up to get started. And please help support the podcast by entering our promo code OPENCOLLEGE, which is all one word. Fall in love with books again with audiobooks.com. And while you're online, please show your support for the podcast by leaving a view on your favorite media player. Now back to the podcast. Journalistically, the pessimists definitely outnumber the optimists. And so here's a, a, a sample quotation from Douglas Rushkoff, uh, his 2019 book called Team Human, in which he articulates the very common fears about our jobless future. And the argument's pretty straightforward. Humans are now doing many sorts of work. Robots are being developed to do that work, so humans are going to be put out of work. Eh, but we're not going to be able to find new jobs for those humans, or they're not going to be able to find any new jobs for themselves. And the same thing is going to happen on the white-collar side. So here's a quote. The benefits have been vastly overstated. Replacing human labor with robots is not a form of liberation, but a more effective and invisible way of externalizing the true costs of industry. The jobless future is less a reality to strive toward than the fantasy of the technological investors for humans of all kinds are merely the impediment to infinite scalability. Now, why might one believe that that pessimistic account is true with its uh, kind of underlying, almost conspiratorial uh, account of the technological drive here? Now, more robustly, about a century ago, uh, John Maynard Keynes was arguing a similar point, quote, we are being afflicted with a new disease. Pausing right there. Yeah, notice the word disease here. Quote, of which some readers may not yet have heard the name, but of which they will hear a great deal in the years to come, namely technological unemployment. This means unemployment due to our discovery of means of economizing the use of labor, outrunning the pace at which we can find new uses for labor, unquote. 
So it's a similar point to Rushkoff's point. Now, interestingly, most of the techno-pessimists will take the Keynes point and run with it. But uh, Keynes, in fact, was much more sophisticated, and he was arguing that that was only a temporary phase, this technological unemployment phase, quote. But this is only a temporary phase of maladjustment. All this means in the long run is that mankind is solving its economic problem. That for the first time since his creation, man will be faced with his real and permanent problem, how to use his freedom from pressing economic cares, how to occupy the leisure which science and compound interest will have won for him to live wisely and agreeably and well. So the divide between the optimist and the pessimist seems to have a psychological component as well as a philosophical component. And now we do have a huge amount of historical data because there have been lots and lots of technological revolutions over the centuries, and we know how they have played out every single time. So the point that Keynes and the optimists are making is that, yes, technology does displace a number of existing jobs, but the technology also opens up new kinds of jobs and new kinds of jobs that are more fulfilling to us. Also, the technological revolutions and innovations enable us to be more productive. And the more that we produce, the lower the cost of uh, those products are, which means that in our role as consumers, we need to work less in order to be able to afford the things that we want. And of course, we can work the same amount and then get more stuff. And then when we are working less, if we take that option, that frees up a certain amount of leisure time, which is a kind of riches itself. And of course, also the kinds of goods that machines often can make are higher quality. So they're going to last longer and they're going to enable us to do more things. So if we compare the computers of our generation with the computers of 20 or 30 years ago, or if we compare the cars of our generation with the cars of two generations ago. So better quality also helps solve our economic problem. Now, more precisely, what I want to do now is look at four aspects of technology's impact on work. I want to argue the optimist position on each of those four, and we'll come back to some of the, the techno-pessimist uh, concerns a little bit later. So the first issue is the quantity of jobs issues. All of the history shows, and this is the general point, that new technological developments enable a net increase in the number of jobs. But the psychological problem is that when we're in the midst of a technological revolution, we're very aware of the jobs that are being lost, but we're not attentive to the jobs that are being created, and it's very difficult for most of us to project the jobs that will be created in the short run the medium run, and the long run. For some reason, I'm back again to, uh, to sewing machines, uh, even though I've never actually used one. But there's another famous uh, set of anecdotes here involving uh, Singer. Yeah, Singer's uh, sewing machine is, is, is the most uh, famous one. He was a New Yorker. He invented the first commercially viable sewing machine. And uh, you know his sewing machine is the one that became a staple of the late 1800s and on into the 2000s. But the first reaction to Singer's sewing machine, even by seamstresses and tailors, for whom you might think, wow, this is going to make me a whole lot more productive, uh, cool technology that I can use. But the, uh, the reaction was uh, dominantly negative by seamstresses and tailors. So whenever Singer or his salesman would show up in small towns wanting to demonstrate the new sewing machine, they, uh, in many cases, literally would be physically abused. You know, sewing machines would be destroyed in some cases, and the person would be uh, run out of town. But then, of course, you know, if we compare the clothing and the fashion industry of the 1850s with the clothing and fashion industry of the 1900s, or with the 1950s, or the year 2020. Now, the net employment in the making of clothes is hugely more, exponentially more. Now, part of the reason is that if machines are making our clothes, then clothing becomes a lot less expensive. So then rather than paying the equivalent, you know, adjusting for inflation and so forth, rather than paying the equivalent of $50 for a t-shirt, we can get one for $10. So we end up buying a lot more t-shirts. But then we need more stuff to be grown, cotton and other materials to make threads, 
uh, which means we need more people working to grow that material, and that's a job increase. And then all of the increased uh, amount of clothing that being being made needs to be distributed, which means we have more people who are working in logistics and in transportation surrounding the clothing industry. And of course, we need people to make these new sewing machines, and we're going to then have more people employed in marketing and sales of clothing and so forth. And so over time, the clothing industry expands dramatically, including employment in the clothing industry. Yes. Some people did lose their jobs as tailors and seamstresses, but they and more people end up being employed making clothes and in accompanying industries over the course of the next generation. Friedrich Nietzsche was famous for his statement that God is dead and his provocative account of master and slave moralities, and also for the fact that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis claim that Nietzsche was one of their great inspirations. Were the Nazis right to do so? Or did they misappropriate Nietzsche's philosophy? Professor Stephen Hicks's concisely written book, Nietzsche and the Nazis, based on the 2006 documentary, corrects many widespread misconceptions about Nietzsche, giving a fascinating and easy to understand analysis of Nietzsche's work, asking and answering a number of questions, such as what were the key elements of Hitler and the National Socialist political philosophy? How did the Nazis come to power in a nation as educated and civilized as Germany? What was Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy? The philosophy of live dangerously, and that which does not kill us makes us stronger? And to what extent did Nietzsche's philosophy provide a foundation for the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis? Professor Hicks demonstrates his mastery of this subject using quotes and critical analysis that prove his points and show the true linkage between Nietzsche and the Nazis, and how philosophical ideas move the world. Get your copy of Nietzsche and the Nazis by Stephen Hicks on Amazon.com today. And while you're online, please leave a review for the Open College podcast hosted by Hicks himself on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. Now, a similar case in a couple of generations you know, with the rise of the automobile. If we can say, yes, the automobile comes along and it puts a certain number of people out of work. Veterinarians who are looking after all of those horses. Farmers who are growing hay to feed all of the horses that are pulling our transportation devices. Blacksmiths who are making the horseshoes to protect the feet of the horses and so forth. Chauffeurs who know only how to handle horses and so on. Yes, those people do lose their jobs as uh, automobiles replace horse-drawn machines. But then if we take the transportation industry that is horse-centered, say in the year 1880 or 1890, and compare that same transportation sector in 1930, there's hugely more people employed in the transportation sector, and the farmers have redeployed what they are growing. Veterinarians have redeployed what kind of animals they are attending to. Chauffeurs have learned how to drive cars, and they've become chauffeurs of automobiles instead of people who look after horses. Now, another example, jumping a few generations into the future, uh, is the ATM machine. And uh, this is one that I am very fond of personally because I can remember being in my 20s when I was working in construction. I would get paid every Friday at the end of work, and then I would go to the bank in order to deposit my pay in my bank account and uh, to get some money out for partying on the weekend and, and other stuff. But there were no ATM machines at this time. And pretty much everybody else got paid on Friday, and everybody would go to the bank in order to deposit their check. So it cost me a half an hour every Friday evening to drive to the bank, stand in line, and make my deposit. I remember doing the math one time while standing in line. So I'm working 50 weeks a year, and every week I stand in line for half an hour. So that means I'm standing in line at the bank for 25 hours a year. That's one whole day of my life. What the ATM machine does, and then a little bit later, and faster even, direct deposit due, is they save me that day. Well, what about the bank tellers, though? What about the thousands of bank tellers around the country? Won't they be put out of work? Now, here's an interesting statistic referred to both in the Tamney book and in the Diamandis and Kotler book that I recommended earlier, that the number of bank tellers working in the United States now in 2020 is actually more than in the year 2005. And the number in 2005 is more bank tellers working than in the year 1990. 
So the point here is that technological developments transform industries in ways that are not apparent to us and that we cannot always predict. But the pattern almost always is a net increase. The internet is another example here. And I'll just cite a McKinsey study on the internet's impa impact on unemployment over the over the last generation. Obviously, the, ins uh, the internet's been hugely transformative. How we you know, produce and uh, distribute and listen to music, how we watch movies, how we access air travel, taxis, Uber, Lyft, and so forth. But what this uh, McKinsey study found was that for every job the internet has destroyed, it has added. 2.6 jobs to the economy. So that then is to say uh, that that technology is a more than doubling of the number of jobs. Now, in the case of robotics now, the new robotics will enable us to do all sorts of new things. And we will create new jobs, obviously, for people who make robots, invent new robots, sell robots, and then all of the support staff for people who are in the secretarial and accounting roles and marketing roles and so forth. So quantity of jobs, that's optimist point number one. Now, second is the quality of jobs. All of the past trends are that technology makes jobs that are more interesting to us and more challenging for us. They humanize us more. And the same holds uh, and will hold for robots and artificial intelligence. Now, I think this quality of work factor is especially interesting because think of the way people, most people rather, conceptualize work. In most cultures, the standing assumption is that work is a kind of drudgery. Right? It's something that you have to do. Oh, man, Monday morning, I have to go to work. Right? And we're all familiar with the phrase, I'm just working for the weekend. So the idea here is I only go to my job in order to pay the bills, and so I kind of shut myself off in order to get through the work week, but on the weekend, that's when I really become alive and am, my, am myself. So here, work is not thought of as something that's fulfilling or that develops my humanity or provides meaning and purpose and significance in my life. Instead, it's mechanical. It's boring. It's dehumanizing. I'm a clock watcher. I can't wait until it's over. And unfortunately, it's a widespread feeling given the kind of work that many people around the world have to do, especially in less technological societies, simply to put food on the table. And it's interesting how difficult it is, seems to be for many tech journalists and, uh, and, and for sophisticated people who write in the business ethics literature for them not to see the quality upside of technology-based work, or to increase the stakes how technology enables more people to find fulfilling work, or even to pursue their work as a romantic adventure. Now, here's another kind of personal anecdote when I think about the quality of work. So uh, my last name is Hicks. You know, I come from uh, about my dad's side, a long line of Canadian farmers. Uh, the joke in the Hicks family is that we have been farmers so long, we invented dirt. But the personal question for me is, you know, why, given my family history, am I not a farmer now up in Canada? And it's glaringly clear to me that technology opened career doors that would not have been possible for my great-grandfather uh, and perhaps even my grandfather. Realistically, when they were young men working on the farm, the idea that they could, you know, as, uh, as, as was uh, easily conceivable for me, that they could go out to Western Canada and work on the oil rigs, buy a motorcycle and travel around, go to Europe, uh, then go off to your university, stay in touch with the family by phone and a little bit later email, move to another country, the United States, uh, access from my computer research from all over the world, have video conferences with translators working on other continents, and so on. My my work life, which has been enormously fulfilling to me, has been made possible by technology. Many doors were opened to me precisely because of the technology. Now, I'm just one guy, and while the details are going to differ individually, that story would have to be repeated not only millions of times, but tens of millions of times and hundreds of millions of times. Technology opens more and more interesting careers to people. If we look at a sub-demographic, right, if we look at the history of women's work and feminist reflections on it, you know, just 
for now, set aside all of the victim feminists rather for now. But there's obviously a widespread recognition that technology in the early 20th century was perhaps the greatest liberating force for women in all of human history. You know, think of the kind of work that women were traditionally consigned to doing. Now, certainly many of them took it on willingly, but doing the household cleaning and all of the food preparation, all the child rearing. But then consider all of the technology that made possible national and international food distribution networks. So there are ready-made meals, refrigerators to store foods, so that fewer shopping trips are, are necessary, washing machines and vacuum cleaners and water heaters and diapers and baby di- monitors and so on. So now women who choose to be homemakers, they don't have to be working sun up to sundown six or seven days a week doing repetitively a limited number of things. They can fit more into their schedules and more interesting things. And they can have more time for enriching interactions with their families or going to college or having a side career. And those trend lines are all strong over this 20th century, driven precisely by technology. So a third factor now, the range of jobs that are available to people. It's not only the quality of the work and the quantity of jobs available to people, but also the sheer range of jobs that technology opens up. It's astounding when we think about it. Uh, Suppose you go back to the 1700s, you're a young man, and even more restrictingly so, you're a young woman in, in 1700 before the Industrial Revolution. How many jobs are open to you? How many career possibilities can you pursue? It's a fairly limited range. But then a couple of generations into the Industrial Revolution, how many types of careers can you pursue in 1800? How many types of career in 1900? And then the same thing now that we are into the 2000s. Now, in education circles, uh, those who are more entrepreneurial about education are aware of all of these trends. And they start to say things like, you know, we are trying to prepare students now for jobs that don't exist yet. And that's true. And that's a cutting edge formulation that's worth, worth dwelling upon. And it's a very good sign that more people are asking. What should we be doing in education if we're preparing students for jobs that don't exist yet? So historically, teachers and curriculum designers almost always had a pretty good idea of what kind of jobs they thought that students were uh, uh, needed to be prepared for. So there's a change here, a big psychological shift. There's going to be all kinds of new jobs created, and we don't yet know exactly what those are. And so some more generalized skills are going to be needed here, and that's what we need to be doing in education. So some examples would be of this newer range of jobs coming into existence as a result of technology. We can think, for example, of the art world. It's not only that the number of people working as artists and musicians is now much, much larger than a century ago. And the numbers a century ago were much larger than two centuries ago. Now, partly, again, it's the technology that has made us a lot wealthier. There are a lot more wealthy families out there. So if one of the kids decides that he or she wants to become a painter or a musician, families are more likely to be encouraging of that. But think of, say, the movie industry. You know, the movie industry did not exist a century and a bit ago. It's a brand new technologically driven industry that has come into existence. And sometimes I like to reflect on the list of credits that scroll along at the end of the movies, and you see hundreds and hundreds of names and jobs listed. And dozens and dozens of those types of jobs did not exist before the movie industry and its technology develop. Or if we think of sports as another uh, hugely expansive industry, it's not only just the number of people who are now able to make a living as professional athletes, as athletic trainers, as coaches, as team owners, and so forth. And it's not only that the number of jobs is going up, and it's not only that people are able to find a fulfilling career in the sports industry because they love But it's also that the range of jobs in and surrounding the sports industry is vastly increased. Sports technology has advanced, as has telecommunications technology, and that's another converging industrial development. So television, for example, and that set of technological developments converged with all of the developments going on in the sports industry. So instead, for example, of maybe a few thousand people able to be spectators at a sporting event, 
television means that hundreds of thousands or millions of people can be watching that same sporting event. And then through advertising and other revenue capturing methods, that sporting event now has millions right, rather than thousands of dollars accruing to it. And then much of that money is then reinvested in the sports industry, creating more and different kinds of jobs. So we do have more athletes and coaches and trainers and agents and referees and umpires and more makers of sports equipment and sports clothes and then advertisers and radio and television commentators and lawyers who specialize in sports contracts, sports websites and other publications and so forth. So quantity up, quality up and range of jobs also up. In Stephen Hicks' news book, Liberalism Pro and Con, Dr. Hicks examines 15 arguments for liberalism and 15 against in detail and expands upon the significance of each. Liberalism increases freedom. People work harder in liberal societies. People work smarter under liberalism. Liberalism increases individuality and creativity. Liberalism increases the average standard of living. The poor are better off under liberalism. To get your copy of Liberalism Pro and Con, click on the link in the description of this podcast or hop onto the web and search for your copy of Liberalism Pro and Con. While you're online, please leave a review for the Open College podcast and follow us online on all of our social media platforms, Twitter, Parler and Minds. Now back to the podcast. And now a kind of fourth factor, technology enables better paying work. It's not just more jobs, higher quality jobs, and a greater range of jobs. Technology typically increases the compensation of the people who are working with that technology. Now, part of it is the, you know, the straightforward economic point that technology combined with human beings makes both of them more productive. And if they're more productive, then more revenue is going to be generated. And if there's more revenue being generated, then the human being who is now skilled enough to work with this more productive machine or robot is going to capture a portion of that greater revenue. So, for example, bulldozers and backhoes, they're more productive than shovels. So human beings who work with bulldozers are going to earn more than human beings who work with shovels. So those are four major upsides. Now, the techno-pessimists, they might argue This time, it's different. Robots and artificial intelligence are unique, and they are game changers in a historically unprecedented way. Now, I think that this is true, but in one way only. It's not in terms of any of the dynamics that we just spent some time on. It's it's going to be a net increase in the quantity, quality, range of jobs, and the pay for those jobs. But the way in which I think the, this is different is that the rate of change is different and faster. We are, in fact, going up the exponential curve in terms of the rate of adoption of new technologies. And that means uh, our ability to adapt has to keep pace. You may have seen uh, various charts documenting the implementation times of new technologies. So, uh, uh, you know, for example, steam engines, they take off in uh, 1769 when James Watt invents the first commercially feasible steam engine. So the question then is, how long was it from 1769 until steam engines were widely adopted? And the answer is about 80 years. By 1849, industry had been transformed and was now dominantly driven by steam engine. Then another technology comes along. Commercially feasible electricity comes along at the end of the 1800s. But it's only 40 years later that reach the benchmark, that 80% of the population is using electricity. And that's twice as fast. So the steam engine took 80 years to reach that penetration of the market. Electricity only took 40 years to reach that level of penetration of the market. So then the internet comes along and we reach the 80% benchmark in only 20 years, again, twice as fast. And now the projection and the expectation is that robotics and artificial intelligence are only going to take 10 years to reach a comparable level of penetration in the general politician, population. Rather. 
And that curve is significant because then we can say, well, yes, you know, we can adjust to these revolutionary technological advances, but we don't have 80 years to adjust like we did with the steam engine. We don't even have 40 years like we did electricity. And we don't have 20 years even like we did with the internet. That was so fast. We've only got 10 years. And the techno-pessimist point can be that we're going to generate huge amounts of increased stress because not everybody is equally adaptable, nimble, flexible, and so on. So now we come back again to philosophy and psychology. What does it take among us to become adaptable, nimble, and flexible uh, in the face of rapidly and changing physical environments and technological environments? And we come back to education. Because what the technology is doing is increasingly underscoring our cognitive capacities both our strengths and their weaknesses. Now, for those individuals who have trained themselves to be rational, to be committed to productiveness, to taking full responsibility for their lives, those individuals do develop strength of character. They develop the resilience that's needed for whenever life brings dramatic changes. They have the cognitive tools. They have the emotional tools. They have the habits of living to be able to adapt when they need to, and they're more likely to enjoy the challenges of change rather than to fear them. But on the flip side, we can expect that people who have not developed their rationality, who are not so committed to productivities or to taking full self-responsibility in their lives, they are going to be more stressed by technological change. And that stress is going to manifest itself psychologically and socially in negative forms. So, for example, if a person of robust rationality and self-responsibility is in the line of work, subject to robotic and AI transformation, the reaction is more likely going to be, oh, this is cool. You know, this is going to make me also more productive. This is something new and interesting that I can learn. It's going to help me develop as a person in my career. But the automated response for the other type of person, the less rational and the less committed to productiveness, will be a fear reaction. This is a threat to me because maybe I don't want to have to learn and I don't want to have to adapt and I don't know if I can compete. I don't think that I'm up to it. And then the demographics become important. Which industry sectors are going to be most affected by robots and artificial intelligence? How many millions of people are we talking about in each of those sectors. And then, of course, the political implications spill out of this. How are the politicians going to respond to the pressure? Will they respond in kind of mild paternalistic form saying, well, you know, we're not going to encourage all of you just to be more self-responsible and to retrain yourself because maybe we don't think we are up, you know, that you're up to that challenge of doing so. So we're going to have to spend a lot more money on government re-education programs. Or perhaps even more paternalistic, we just don't think you, uh, you're up to the challenge at all. And so we're going to have to expand the welfare state dramatically for all of those people we don't think can adapt. Now, independently of what the techno-pessimists uh, or the paternalist politicians might say, I think the most important factor here is individual. It's going to be what each of us as individuals decides for ourselves. We all know the big changes are coming, and we can embrace and prepare for them if we want to. Now, one fun way of looking at the business landscape now is to, uh, to keep uh, tabs on the Fortune 500 companies. Now, currently, they're dominated by uh, companies like Google, Yahoo, Facebook, Apple, and, and Microsoft. Amazing uh, accomplishments in all of those organizations. But what's fascinating to me is that None of those companies existed when I was a little kid. That's continuous with previous generations of Fortune 500 companies. There's always significant churn among the Fortune 500 companies. And that sets up a, a projection that I uh, want to give to you from Richard Foster, who's a professor at Yale University. And Foster makes the arguments that 40% of current Fortune 500 companies, that's going to be 200 of those 500 companies, 40% of them are not going to exist in 10 years. That's amazing. They're going to fall out of the Fortune 500, or they won't exist in their current form. They will be replaced by new companies. And his prediction 
is that they're going to be replaced by companies that we have not yet heard of in 10 years. Now, those new companies, the, the ones that are going to become huge, they're out there. They're being formed right now. So there is, in fact, lots and lots of opportunities and lots and lots of wealth waiting to be created. And that then means for each of us as individuals, there is an education and personal cultural issue. If we want to extend that to our role in influencing other people, how can we get more people to be aware of those opportunities, to have that opportunity mindset about it, and then to be willing to train themselves and to retrain themselves in order to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. And of course, when necessary, as previous generations have done, to move to where those opportunities are. And it's precisely that entrepreneurial mindset that we as parents and educators need to encourage and inculcate in the younger generation. It's precisely that entrepreneurial mindset. That's what brings out our most distinctively human capabilities. And now we can see this if we think about the kind of work that we dread, that we hate. Right? We dread the kind of work that's mechanical, repetitive, unthinking. Right? It's the kind of work that makes us feel dehumanized, like we are zombies, clock watchers going through the motions. What we admire right, explicitly or, or sometimes wistfully is artists and scientists and entrepreneurs, and it's precisely because they're creative, innovative, they're active-minded. That's what it is to be a human being in the fullest sense. Now, being an artist is a kind of work. Being a scientist is a kind of work. Being an entrepreneur is a kind of work. The most fulfilling kinds of work are those that exercise our most distinctively human capacities for discovering new things, for having new experiencings, for feeling challenged, for enabling us to express our creativity. And the point is that robotics and artificial intelligence technologies and all of the technologies, they make it easier and for more of us to be able to do precisely those things. And that's why those technologies should be celebrated. So sometimes, uh, and my sense though, is that lurking behind the techno-pessimistic challenge really is a more pessimistic philosophical understanding of human beings. That techno-pessimism is not always about the technology, but it's mostly about what you think about human beings. That the techno-pessimists are more likely to believe that most people don't have it in them to become artists, or to become scientists, or to become entrepreneurs. That most people tend to the couch potato end of the, the life spectrum. And that the reason why most people do all of the drudgery dead-end jobs is that they are drudgery dead-end kind of people. So if we take away their boring jobs, then we're going to take away really the only thing that gives them and can give them some minimal level of structure and meaning in their lives. I think also, more philosophically, that lurking behind techno-pessimism is a kind of long-standing prejudice against the idea of work at all. I don't know how far we want to go back with this, uh, but I'm thinking that just uh, a little while ago, I was recently uh, with my students uh, rereading Genesis, the, uh, the opening book of the Bible, and the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And at first, everything is provided for them, right? It's wonderful, and they don't have to do any work. They can just grab some fruit, the water flows right there for drinking, and they can just, you know, laze around. And then, of course, they disobey, God returns, and lays some punishments on them. But notice that one of the punishments is work. God says, now you're going to have to work for a living. And what's built into this story is a deep conceptualizing of work as something that you as a human being don't want to do, right? that you're only doing it because some authority figure is making you do it, and that really what you want to do is just lay around in the Garden of Eden and not do anything. So I think in contrast to that kind of pacifist story about human values and human nature, what we, uh, we need to articulate better for ourselves and, uh, and for others is that all of us, are potential artists. We're all potential scientists. We're all potential entrepreneurs. Now, of course, we older people might be past transformative change in our lives, but younger people can and they must learn to believe in their open-ended potential. 
And that should point to, uh, to another hobby horse of mine, a major institutional change, which is to get the kids out of the current dominant model of schooling. While I think every child is a potential inquiring scientist, a creative artist, and or active entrepreneur, a lot of that gets beaten out of kids or suppressed in them by the time they are in second or third grade of traditional schooling. Now, for 10 to 12 years, they just sit in chairs, they do what they're told, they're filling out worksheets, they're having to ask permission to go to the bathroom. And as a result, what we're doing is mass producing young people who've lost their childhood potential. But even so, I do think that our technology has proven that the pacifist and pessimist outlook is wrong. Because all you have to do is look at how many people who a generation ago didn't have access to technology are now making movies, they're making music, often without any hope of ever making money from it, but simply because they can't help but do it. That's their humanity coming out. I'm floored, for example, uh, frequently. Uh, how many people spend time outside of their work exploring things like that today? One example of that is just, it's absolutely great when you just poke around on YouTube and other places and you just see all of the stuff that people are, are doing. Or you spend some time exploring Wikipedia and you realize that that entire vast array of stuff is done by amateurs mostly, people who happen to know a lot about something and are passionate about it. That's the great range of human creative and productive energy that's out there, often in latent form. It's astounding. The technology, including next generation robotics and artificial intelligence, is better enabling them and all of us. You're listening to Open College on the Possibly Correct Network with renowned philosopher and author, Dr. Stephen Hicks. Stay up to date with the latest releases and news from Dr. Hicks by following the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Minds.com and Gab, or sign up to our email list at www.opencollegepodcast.com. While you're online, please show your support for the podcast by leaving a view on your chosen media player. You can check out all our podcasts by following Possibly Correct on Minds.com.